welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Welcome back. Last week I spoke for about a half hour about a discovery of a poet, short story writer, resident of a place I never heard of called the Orkney Islands. His name is George Mackay Brown. And I want to complete the discussion about him, which has turned out to be quite the production for me because I became fascinated by him because I wanted to fill in some information about why he became Catholic, which in the one biography I read was not clear. And then I have read that uh, other biographers also sort of struggled with his reasons for becoming Catholic. I thought, well, one way to try to figure it out would be to actually read his autobiography called For the Islands I Sing, written, I think, in the 80s. I will get back to his Catholic conversion in a bit. Um, and I frankly think that it's pretty self-explanatory. I personally, I understood what was written in the autobiography. And I guess it's a combination of the intuitive and the rational. He seemed to think more of it as intuitive than rational. Well, that's my opinion. So anyway, George Mackay Brown was one of six children. He was the baby of the family. I suppose it isn't a surprise that they were a group used to limited means, particularly as the father, though he worked as a postal deliveryman and sometime tailor, was himself sickly. These ordinary realities would be among Mackay Brown's poetic subjects. I ran across a picture of the two of them. The youngest son is a boy and the father in his postal uniform. Whatever were the oppressions of illness and scarcity of funds, the father, John Brown, looks unerringly straight at the camera. His left hand is forcefully on his hip, pushing back the flap of his jacket, and his right hand braces the right shoulder of a boy eyes cast down a bit, but still looking ahead, his little hands in front of him and grasping one, grasping the other. Can't be any more than four or five years old. So this would be just about 1926 or seven. Father and son stand on what appears to be a slightish hill in front of a humble building or humble buildings, perhaps of a farm, perhaps of their own residence. Both seem to me to have the same slight tentative smile. I noticed the same smile in an older photo of Mackay Brown long after his father left the earth. We are all connected to the places of our origins, I suppose. I have lived nearly 40 years away from the geographic area in which I was born, though in a big city, New York, in a tiny patch of neighborhood in the Bronx. But I suppose, like Mackay Brown, the people and places that were there intertwined. The people of our brick five-floor tripart walk-up, characters like Mrs. Melnick, who sat by her first-floor courtyard-facing window watching us play, Mrs. Gertler, whose piano legs pounded on our ceiling as she moved from room to room, Mr. Singer, who sold the very particular nail polish remover that my mother loved, Swish, in the hardware store. Louis, the tailor, 
whose laundry business was supported by the backroom gambling business. We all have those connections. And some people, like my own mother, who would have given anything for some creative career, never left the source from which they sprung. For George Mackay Brown, the town of Stromness in the Orkney Islands was not one from which he wanted to escape, unlike my own mother. He seems to have loved it, been formed, nurtured, and sustained by it. His connection to the place and the sands of time that visibly pulsed through it were life-sustaining for him. It was what evoked his poems, his stories, his faith, ultimately. The way I see it in my reading, the place, simple in a way, but powerful in its force, bespoke the fact of creation that one could easily assent to without all the intellectual debates that, alas, lead only to non-belief rather than active faith. Perhaps, in part, this explains Mackay Brown's dislike of modern life, even as little that came to Orkney, that it disguised, obscured, and nearly obliterated the vision of God so present there aeons before. The modern world, for all of its conveniences, made the future a fearful thing as men forgot about the mysteries of creation and of history in favor of a self-reliance that opened the way not to better things, but to the shadow of evil, whatever the reasons, and there have been plenty of speculations about it in article after article. Mackay Brown ventured away from Stromness rarely, except when he studied at schools and the New Battle Abbey and Edinburgh University. I believe he also even tried to teach briefly and visited London and Ireland once. But his lifeblood and his work was where he was sired. If he had a vice, and no doubt he fought with himself over it, whether it was a vice or a sin at all, was to drink too much. In fact, he denied he was an alcoholic in his autobiography, and truthfully, when he describes some of the things that happened when he drank, it sounds as if he actually was an alcoholic. Perhaps he drank to mollify the depression I mentioned as best he could. Another force that framed him was his mother, and I want to make at least a brief mention of her. She was not from the Orkney Islands. She was born in a place called Sutherland in the north of Scotland, and she was a Gael, meaning G-A-E-L, Gaelic, and she spoke primarily Gaelic as a child growing up. When she was old enough, she left home and moved to the Orkney Islands to work with a distant cousin in a hotel, and there she met, in that area, she met her husband, Mackay Brown's father whom she did not particularly like when she first met, but they ultimately married. In his autobiography, Mackay Browns refers to his attachment to his mother and even points out that it would be potentially some interest to a psychologist, but he simply states it as a matter of fact that his state of mind always was sort of staying with where he grew up, and his mother was a manifestation of that, that when he was young, he didn't even like the idea of her leaving home to go shopping, that he was concerned that she might never come back again. I guess for some reason there was a fear of abandonment. Maybe that's why he stayed in one place where he felt safe and attached. He hated his early education, which was very uninspired, very rote, very rigid, 
and it was only in his later years of education that he began to get a sense of literature and of history. He wrote columns for the neighboring newspapers as he grew older. He was introduced to the world through another poet, also from Orkney, a place called Deerness, in this man's case, an elder mentor and a friend who was born in 1887, although he grew up in Glasgow and later lived in London, Edwin Muir. His life might be viewed as more cosmopolitan, his life in the city, but like Mackay Brown, he saw modernity as evidence of the loss of original innocence, not strictly from a religious sense, as he sought psychological and general mythological explanations. He met Mackay Brown as the warden, which is like a dean, at New Battle Abbey when Mackay Brown was a so-called mature student, and he encouraged Mackay Brown's writing and assisted him in becoming a published one, which brought a fame to Mackay Brown that his definite nature did not feel great comfort in. But both men seem to have seen in their homes and in the world at large the destruction wreaked by the 20th century and man's rapacious capacity toward darkness rather than the light. When you see a picture of the adult Mackay Brown, there is a sadness betrayed by a slight smile and then this medusan mop of hair. When he was abroad studying in places like Edinburgh, he would go to the bars, a particular one called Rose Street. He would have in his life a couple of intense, though many people speculate they were only platonic relationships with women. He was engaged once to a beautiful woman named Stella he met at Rose Street, but marriage never occurred. The easy explanation, and the one that modernity, which as I noted, Mackay Brown was not particularly fond of, is that he was gay, so much so that he didn't even know it. I think that's bunk, frankly. Perhaps he was among those souls which the self-enlightened Twitterers of today can't imagine as they think in short phrases that lack nuance, he was one who just did not give all-consuming priority to the sex act. That's just my opinion. There are just so many things that, that form us, and it's like a puzzle. One of my favorite movies and books is a book and movie called uh, Equus, about a young man who commits a violent act whose life background is so diverse in small things, in little things that you and I might not notice that make him, lead him to quite actually blind horses in a stable. And what you learn by reading this play is that all of us are formed by these forces, big and small. Why would he be afraid of relationship? It's easy, as I said, to say, oh, he was gay or he's a sexual. I think that there are some people who are so aware of the transcendent that these earthly, quote, pleasures really already don't satisfy. And I would add that in some people, as in this man's case, the shadow of depression also distracts. Well, they seek the transcendent through the muck of human existence or they look for, in human existence, intimations of the Eden that was lost. There's a quote in his autobiography about when Shakespeare was thrown at him and his fellow 12-year-olds at a time when he thinks they were too young to really understand it. But he says that the first line of Shakespeare he experienced, 
quote, intrigued him. In sooth, here's the quote from Shakespeare, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. Those words should be carved over the lintel of my door in a way they express perfectly my life and my way of looking at things. A tremulous melancholy, a mystery through which are glimpsed and guessed from time to time forms of beauty and delight. Sometimes it has seemed to me thy will be done is the only prayer worth uttering because it comprehends everything. I have kind of a, an understanding of what he's saying because to be somewhat disclosing here, I've always found a depression, sadness, always lurking with me. And I think that doing this program and living my last part of life right now, however long that'll be, is trying to sort all that out. And perhaps in not such a brilliant way, probably a much more muddling way in some ways than this creative man trying to sort out what the bottom line is, and that being, thy will be done, and resisting it, quite frankly. I think that's the problem, resisting thy will be done. So I'm moving into the Catholicism of Mackay Brown. I've said here and elsewhere that I've always liked another image, and that's from Brideshead Revisited, and it's the phrase, the twitch upon the thread. It also is kind of what I talked about a week or two ago about faith preceding understanding. Something pulls and tugs at people. I don't know if it's everybody. I know it was this man, and I know I feel that myself. I'm suspecting many of those that I talk to every week feel the same thing. Some people ignore it. Some people just push it aside. A lot don't. They struggle with it. So here I am within the church, but I don't see my faith as static at all. I see it as something constantly ebbing and flowing and in constant need of nurturing. I'm affected by the things I read. I clip out the things that speak to the innermost part of me and I put them in a book in hopes that somehow they'll take root. So just as Mackay Brown found that first line of Shakespeare he heard as something that spoke to him about the struggle. So when he came across another poem, Francis Thompson's Hound of Heaven, I feel like when I do this program, I'm just discovering things, thing after thing. Here's a, a poem that I've known of and I never read. This is what Mackay Brown says about it. Quote, our English master one day read to the class Francis Thompson's Hound of Heaven. I think, looking back after 45 years, that the poem has many flaws in its pure gem-like flame. But I could not have enough of that wonderful discovery. I read it over and over until I had it by heart. And I knew that the man reeling from delight to vain earthly delight was a Catholic, a very sad and weak and fallible one and that the hound in relentless pursuit of him was Christ or the church. And for some reason, these facts gave to the poem an extra relish. So all the stuff around him, his place of birth, his family, just like us, his education, his depression, all of this is projecting him towards, towards something, towards, in this case, the church. Just as, even though I'm within the church, 
I sense that I'm being moved about in some sort of sculpting, molding. I want to read two stanzas of The Hound of Heaven because it's a very long poem. It was written in uh, the 19th century, but I think it gives a sense of the power of the forces around us, the transcendent forces, if we'll be willing to look at it. I'm going to read the first and the last paragraph, if I haven't already said that. And again, this is by Francis Thompson, born in 1859, died in 1907. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed followed after but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace deliberate speed majestic instancy they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet all things betray thee who betrayest me so the subject or object of the poem, Thompson himself perhaps, goes about his merry way, going through the obstacles of life, hither and fro, and then comes to a conclusion. Quote from the poem, last paragraph or last stanza, Now of that long pursuit comes on at hand the bruit, that voices round me like a bursting sea, and is thy earth so marred, shattered in shard on shard, lo, all things fly thee, for thou fliest me. Strange, piteous, futile thing, wherefore should any set thee love apart? Seeing none, but I makes much of naught, he said, and human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited, of all man's clotted clay, the dingiest clot? Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee, save me, save only me? All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightst seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come, halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly? Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. So, Mackay Brown did a lot more reading, Graham Greene and Newman, and concluded, as I think even people like myself, far less intelligent, have concluded, is that it's purely amazing that the Catholic Church has survived through all it has. The history of mankind should have long since quelled it and destroyed it, but it hasn't. And he, this man from a mysterious place, recognized the mysterious power of God. He became fascinated by the Mass. I guess I see it as a reflection of the world in which he lived, except supernaturally, supranaturally. The suggestion might be that Mackay Brown's lifelong attraction was somehow parallel to his love of the rhythms of the place in which he was sculpted emotionally, psychologically, and physically, Orkney. He says in his 
autobiography that reason and argument ultimately did not do it for him. Literature was a big thing for him. The glory of it, the beauty of it, that moved him. And in that movement, I suppose reason was there, but ultimately it was intuitive, I guess. It seems that, how I would describe it, he marinated in his spiritual juices. And then he absorbed enough of everything he read and saw and that made up his psyche and his spirituality and it made him commit but like the rest of us he was a sinner there's another biographer and i haven't read his also the last name of ferguson ron ferguson suggested in some i saw in some critique that that uh Mackay Brown's Catholicism was lazy. <laughs> I think I think that is a problem for most, if not all of us, swimming upstream to reach paradise lost once again, even though we have been fully redeemed, just like in the Hound of Heaven. We have to make the effort to reach up and grasp his hand. I was uh, aware in reading the poem, I didn't read that part of it, that God is referred to, maybe Christ actually, is referred to as this tremendous lover. Maybe it's the romance of it all, the romance of Catholicism that drew Mackay Brown. I'm no creative genius like Mackay Brown, but I can tell you how readily I run from the idea of God's consuming love and how I have a hard time sometimes confronting the teachings of the church, particularly ones I find less attractive, this side of Eden. As we all know, abiding by the 2,000-year-old dogmas of the church are not popular, and they surely aren't easy unless and until each of us fully abandons ourselves to, call it the love of God, to the grasp of his hand. Maybe all that Catholic-laced poetry and the Orkney-based poetry for Mackay Brown and its combination was his form of prayer in disciplining himself towards a solid faith that ultimately is so ineffable itself that one can't give notched reasons for their acceptance. But God, in the original iteration and true iteration of Catholicism, became as much part of Mackay Brown as Orkney itself. At least that's how I see it. A kind of, I know it when I see it. Right to the end of our lives, we are always standing in two places. Will I say yes to God, or will I not? Maybe occasionally he felt the security of God. I do, occasionally, as might you, but it passes and has to be rediscovered. When you peel away all the distractions and rationalizations and human pride, which, as you know, is very hard to do, I wish I had so far, the truth of the Catholic Church is just there for the taking. Mackay Brown attended Mass. He had a spiritual director. People who knew him always saw the spiritual, but in the sense, I think they may have been talking about something otherworldly, but perhaps they were also seeing the Catholic Mackay Brown. He wasn't spiritual in the modern sense. Anything goes, whatever I feel, in the series of aha moments, but in something far more tangible and well-formed. Now, obviously, I in no way have the life experience of this man, and I just discovered him a couple of weeks ago, but I understand, or think I do, something about him which resonates with me. The battle within that 
although apparently and in the moment is sociable, would prefer to live and be solitary and is attracted to but struggles with a true commitment to the religious form. Mackay Brown was a man who went his own way. And that certainly isn't popular. It wasn't popular then, probably. It's certainly not popular today. And I think being a Catholic is essentially a practicing Catholic, is, is going your own way if you are in conformity with the magisterium. Here's a little bit of a tale that I read both in the biography uh, that I read and in his autobiography. He was at a speech by a man who was considered anti-Catholic. and It was in the 1930s, a guy named John McCormick. He spoke once, this McCormick, about a young woman who, as it turns out, when I googled her, is a venerable, an actual uh, woman on the way to becoming officially a saint. She was born in 1900. She died in 1925 of tuberculosis, which is in part an explanation for why Mackay Brown had a certain affinity to her, but not entirely. She was also known as Sister Mary Frances of the Five Wounds when she became a poor Clare nun. There appears to have been absolutely nothing unusual about her. Like St. Therese, she seems to not have been liked by all the nuns in the convent. And because of her poor background and lack of education, she did not find it easy to be accepted among the more aristocratic nuns. But again, like St. Therese of the Little Flower, her innocent, true piety, she developed a following. When this John McCormick went on a screed about her, he said, in terms of her being so wonderful and being a Catholic, McCormick said, why? Her father was a scaffy. A scaffy is a rubbish collector or something like a street cleaner. So what happened when Mackay Brown heard this and came to learn about her? He became devoted to her and actually apparently prayed for her intercessions. Well, this also resonates with me, particularly in these days, in a broad way. Catholicism, at least in its human willingness to follow the tradition and the magisterium, is being currently torn apart from within by laymen and clerics alike. And while the effort appears to be aimed at turning us away, in many cases it's having the opposite effect in many people. It is making this, this assault on truth many more committed in the way they may not have been before. Maybe that was a little bit of the experience of the martyrs. It's always been curious to me that so many martyrs died so peacefully. The more you were told that they are wrong, or the more they were told that they were wrong and threatened and their existence was ended, the more they knew where the truth lay. Anyway, what happened ultimately to George Mackay Brown? Well, we know he died in 1996 of bowel cancer. It's interesting. I was looking at uh, Wikipedia and the New York Times, the uh, New York Times obituary. It's interesting that there is nary a mention of his Catholicism. And in the Wikipedia page about him, there's sort of an interesting reference to his postgraduate study on Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was also a convert to Catholicism uh, just after the time of Newman and says that his postgraduate study in Hopkins was not to his taste. Well, 
it is true he did not like doing that kind of writing, that kind of postgraduate study. I know for myself, I didn't finish my psychology degree because I hated the process of the uh, thesis. I thought it was boring. I thought it was uncreative, and I just couldn't handle it. I was an older person at the time, so I can understand that. But the work on Gerard Manley Hopkins was very much to his taste if you read his autobiography. He was another influence on his becoming Catholic. Well, I never got to Mackay Brown's actual poetry today, which I intended to do. I realized that what I want to do before next week is to read The Wound and the Gift by the other Ferguson, Ron Ferguson, which is apparently an entire study of Brown's journey spiritually and then in Wikipedia, they say, including his controversial move from Presbyterianism to Roman Catholicism in 2011. Well, again, that sort of cuts off the fact that he'd been thinking about it since he was 15. So I'm curious to see what makes it controversial from the point of view of the author or from the point of view of Wikipedia. I'm also awaiting a book of collected poems. I have a few that I found on the internet that I'm going to want to go through and talk about, I guess, from my ordinary Catholic perspective. So look at this. I'm going to end the program and leave you hanging once again till next week to hear more about my latest discovery, George Mackay Brown. And I hope you're enjoying the program. It's a little different from the ones I usually do, but I guess I want to share with you the excitement I have at finding this interesting writer, an interesting thinker, an interesting human being who, like us, was on the road to faith and on the road to piercing the cloud of unknowing. See you next week.